Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. You know how it is when you leave one of those jobs and you just go, ah, oh, it's the best job I ever left. Like, like the feeling I have right now? That just want to... Like the feeling you're about to have maybe when you do leave this job? Want to walk out and start the car? And... No, I'm talking about our guest today. Like yeah. he's not going to really say that probably, but... You know that's what he's thinking. Yeah, yeah you, you totally do. This is, so we have on uh, a, a special guest here today. His name's Brad Jones. You don't know this guy's name, but he has been responsible for your your way of life probably over the last 18, 19 months. He is the CEO of ERCOT, mm-hmm. the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. He's the guy making sure the lights have stayed on ever since Winter Storm Uri in February of 2021. Who would want that job? Who would want it, man? After that, the the, the previous yeah. CEO there was let go, uh, terminated very publicly after what happened in that winter storm. And then they were like, okay, we need somebody else to run this now. And everybody just sort of ran away, I would imagine. I mean, who wanted that job? I, I can't imagine the political pressure he was likely under, that Brad Jones was likely under to make sure the lights stayed on. Mm-hmm. As we start this conversation, man, what are we drinking here today? We are drinking. What, what, what are you drinking? You provided both of these beers, by the way. Which one did I provide you, by oh, the you way? You provided me with a St. Arnold award-winning Summer Pills. You know, trade? Well, no, I already both, asked you good. if you wanted to do that, and you said no. So, I, I do like this one. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Four Corners Brewing Company. Yeah, uh, that's a good Dallas. one. In Dallas. Very good one. Um, yeah, Heart of Texas. It's the Red Ale, uh, and it's fantastic. And I've been wanting to open this all day. Okay, it and should be nice it, and warm and by it now. And at the desk, yeah, it's, 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 it's warm, all right. Let's see how much you like those beers uh, from that particular place when you drink it warm. Uh, by the way, um, we we have Brad on from ERCOT. Thanks in very large part to our friends at the Texas Tribune, TribFest 2022 in Austin this year. Every year, Jason, they get, and I don't know how they do this. They just must be better at talking people into things than Highly I am. connected, man. They get everybody to show up to this thing to speak i mean the the biggest names the brightest minds big ideas controversial people they get everybody to show up there so it just ended trip fest 2022 just ended on saturday it started on thursday the 22nd of september it went through saturday the 24th and they had names like lynn cheney jen saki um governor asa hutchinson who did I say? Lynn Cheney? Yeah. Who's Lynn Cheney? She's mom. She's the mom, isn't she? Liz Cheney is who she we yeah. had. This, uh, this warm beer is working pretty well right now, my <laughs> it friend. It just goes right in. It's good. I'm just making up names as we go here. Yeah. Uh, but but, the, but Trip Fest is very important. And and we saw the roster of names they had. And, and we called them up and said, hey, can, can we have a couple of these people too? Right. We're partners. Because we don't have to be highly connected. We just have to be connected to people who are highly connected. You we always, learned that a long time ago. Always have to know somebody. I got a guy. Okay. This is our guy right here. So Trip Fest set us up with Brad. Jones, the CEO of ERCOT, um, and and Brad was speaking at the uh, Texas Tribune Festival over the weekend as well, too. He was one of the speakers down there, mm-hmm. and so we gave him a call and wanted to talk to him to find out, as he is about to leave his interim CEO position, have things improved? Brad, we're going to ask you that, but, but, you know, let's start out with a simple question here, too. Nobody wanted this job when you got the job, when the old CEO was let go. Nobody wanted this job. Why in the world did you take this job? Did the governor ask you to take this job? It's a simple answer. I love Texas and I love ERCOT. And ERCOT was in a a situation where they needed to to rebuild trust with the market, need to rebuild trust with consumers. 
uh, we also needed to refocus all of our operations on reliability and and improve reliability going forward. And we've been able to do that over the last year. So it was really with the intention of restoring or beginning to restore that reputation of ERCOT and the beginning to restore that trust. But also when you get a call from the governor, you jump in there on that, right? Was there a little part of you, though, Brad, that thought, hmm, do I really want to do this after what happened with, with Uri, the, the winter storm? Do I really you know, want to go there, through with this? There wasn't much of that. You know, there's always that in the back that, you know, you're going to step into a very difficult environment that, that you have to manage and work through. But I'll tell you something that was, was fascinating. Uh, remember, I was retired when the storm hit. And I began to get calls from people that I'd known for 20 and 30 years, presidents of corporations, former PUC uh, chairpersons, uh, environmentalists, and they each had a list that they gave me, which was fantastic. And each of them said, you know what ERCOT needs to do? They need to do these five things. And I wrote them all down. Hmm. And out of those multiple people, there was 25 essential advisors that gave me a list. Out of those multiple people, I cobbled together 60 items that I thought made sense, that had to be done. Improvements in reliability, improvements in the organization. And over the last year and a half, we've accomplished, I believe, 57 of those items. Hmm. So we've done an incredible job. And those were not simple things. They were, those were market changing, uh, uh, organizational changes, things that really needed to occur. And we've been able to accomplish most of those. I'm so happy to say. Well, so the point is that, yes, there was concern coming into this role because of the environment, but I had a lot of great advisors that was that was kind of sending me in the right direction of what we could address in the time I'm here. Brad, you knocked out 57 of the 60 things. Um, here's a question I think most Texans are probably going to have. How confident are you that the lights will stay on next winter? Because the grid, as we all learned, is reliant on natural gas, and you guys are two completely separate entities. So I have a lot of confidence. I, I really do. I, there's no guarantees in life anywhere, right? We don't know what kind of winter it might be, but I have a lot of confidence. And if we went back into a 2021 winter and we still had potentially some load shed, it will be done so much better this time around than it was done last time around. So great improvements on that front. Now, we can't expect to have a 130-year storm every year, right? We had a cold winter this last winter. But it was nowhere near 2021. But I'll tell you some of the things that have been done to change to improve. One of the things certainly is weatherization. One of the keys is weatherization of our generation fleet and also ultimately weatherization of our natural gas system. On the generation side, the Public Utility Commission passed a law back last, late last November. And by December 1, we were out in the field with, with uh, dozens of our people uh, going out into the field, checking these generators to make sure that they met these weatherization requirements, to make sure they had the, the insulation in place at the right places and the, and the air blockage uh, in the right places. And of the 302 units that we inspected, uh, 300 of them passed. Those other two had to go back and remediate, but they eventually passed. But 300 passed, which goes to show you, if a rule is passed in November, Jason, and then we begin inspecting in December, that means they had to be working all summer long to get ready for what they thought the rule would be. 
But, but Brad, that, that's the electric side. You guys are still, well, not you guys, we all are still reliant. Uh, you know, half of the generating fleet of electricity in, in the state, I believe, is is natural gas fueled. The, you know, we, we've seen the kind of the resistance, the, 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 hey, slow down a bit by the Railroad Commission and natural gas industry saying, hey, let's map out and find out what the critical pieces of infrastructure are. When we identify those, then we'll talk about how to, uh, you know, secure and weatherize those pipelines and, and those uh, wellheads, et cetera. You guys are confident on the electric side. Should I have confidence on the gas side? You know, that's something that I'm still struggling with a bit. Uh, but I will say that the Railroad Commission just passed a weatherization rule, but it's been it should been in the last couple of weeks. So I don't know m- enough about it to give you a high level of confidence. But the Railroad Commission will tell you they have a high level. Of you're, you're struggling with it, though. Why, why are you struggling with it, Brad? Well, just because I simply don't know the rule very well, the strength of it, how it will be applied. But if they follow the same pathway that the PUC has done and, and they're very strict on performance to these standards, then I think it will be a good standard for the uh, natural gas industry. Brad, I think some people, you know, were probably heartened to see that the Railroad Commission is is putting out these uh, these new regulations there requiring uh, weatherization. Um, there will also be some people, though, who say, why, why now? I mean, it's been, you know, a year and a half. Shouldn't that have already been done a, a while back? Uh, do you share those feelings? Well, in a way, yes, Jason. So, um, what happened was the legislature gave them that time, right? They didn't have to act in the first year. Gave the Railroad Commission that time. I love the way the PUC handled it, though. They weren't going to rely upon the extra time given by the legislature. They got engaged very quick, passed these rules. As I said, they communicated to generators to know for them to know what they should be getting ready for. And we had, we had a very good winter because of it. We had very, very little. Uh, uh, of generation go down due to any cold weather event. And we had a very serious cold weather event on the 4th and 5th of February. Now, Railroad Commission handled it differently. They recognized they had more time given to them by the legislature, uh, and they decided to use that time. Hmm. You know, I'm very happy where they are today. Uh, I would have loved for it to have been earlier, but we didn't have any real uh, concerns or any real problems going through this winter storm on the 4th and 5th with uh, loss of natural gas. Well, well, could we say, too, there that we might have gotten a little bit lucky? We could always say that, Jason, uh, and and that's part of it, right? But uh, now that the Railroad Commission has gotten engaged on setting those weatherization rules, I think we'll be heading heading into this next one. Brad, you mentioned the uh, the Public Utility Commission, the PUC, uh, and of course you're at ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Uh, a lot of people heard those uh, names a lot after the February 2021 winter storm. What's your take on this as as someone who's heading up ERCOT right now still? Were those two agencies scapegoated here? I mean, all of the blame went to ERCOT and PUC. You heard a lot of elected officials just slamming. And, you know, we saw terminations and so forth in both uh, organizations. Were they scapegoated? You know, I, I usually really avoid this question, Jason, and and I'll do so a little bit this time. But well. you're about to leave, Brad. You can answer that. <laughs> That's why we ask you this stuff, man. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I avoid it because it's very difficult to say to ever say, well, it's not my fault, right? There's always some blame that the organization can take on. Now we did take on a lion's share of the blame, which you know most of that really should 
reasonably be put on the generators that lost the ability to operate during that storm. We, uh, our main goal at ERCOT is to balance generation and load. And so if the generation doesn't show up, we have to cut back load. And to give you an example of it, we lost about 50,000 megawatts of generation during that time frame. 50,000 megawatts, and I believe during the winter, we only count on about 85,000 if we expect to receive in the winter. So you can tell what's remaining is not enough to cover our load, which typically runs about 65,000 in the winter. So we had to, to shut down as much of our industrial load as we could, and then we shut down some of our commercial load that we had contracts with to do so. And then ultimately, uh, as I always say, our last stand, our Alamo, is load shed for regular everyday customers. Mm -hmm. And we went so deep into that because we didn't have the generation. We had to go so deep into that load shed that where we ended up, Jason, was we had companies tell us we don't have any more. And when they tell us they don't have any more, it means that the normal plans that they have in place that say we're going to rotate customers every 30 minutes, they simply can't do it because too much was taken up. Now we did, I know y'all like to say blackout, but we don't say blackout because 40 to 50% of customers were getting power during that time. Uh, but obviously it's a significant event when customers' homes are out for 24 and 48 and some 72 hours. And, and when that happens, the cold, uh, the cold in the home gets so cold that it becomes dangerous. And that's, that's where we really get concerned. And that's where we have to make the improvements. So we have to improve on the generation side by weatherization. You've seen us change some of our rules and we're given those rule authority by the legislature that we can go out and actually inspect and then recommend fines that the PUC may levy if they fail to meet those inspections. So we're gonna start with the generation weatherization, but we also have to focus at the other end on improving those load shed plans and that work's still being done. And then what do we have to do in the middle? There's a couple of things where I think ERCOT can really take on, take on some of the blame, as we should, and, and make changes in how we do our business. One is in communications. We always saw ourselves as managing just that small piece of communications that was responsibility of ERCOT. We changed that. Now we embrace the entire industry. Because what happened during the storm was everyone had a different story. Jason, they were, you know, REPs were saying one thing and transmission companies were saying another and generations were saying a third and we were saying a fourth and the PUC and the governor had a fifth hmm. and everybody had a different story. And so we're working now with the entire industry to coordinate that message every time one of these events happens. And we're also sitting shoulder to shoulder with the PUC and the uh, State Department of Emergency Services. Uh, we uh, we're sitting shoulder to shoulder in their operations center so that we can communicate with all of the government entities that are taking action. So we have proved that greatly. And then I promised you one other thing that I think that we have recognized has been a failing of ERCOT. In the last 20 years, we've let the market push us toward low cost, more affordability, and giving up reliability. And every small step that we took that we said, okay, all right, Maybe we don't do that reliable thing because it costs too much. Every small step we took led us down to the path that ended up in 2021. Hmm. So we've changed that. We now fight vigorously for it. And it's a change at ERCOT that the uh, stakeholders are still struggling with, right? But we fight vigorously for more reliability. And we're able to prove that it's at a very small cost for consumers. 
So we're able to really maintain that affordability while keeping more reliable. Yes, Jason. Brad, you mentioned, uh, let's talk about reliability for a moment, because you mentioned load shed plans. Those are still being worked on. For our listeners who might not know the, the, the terminology and the lingo here, load shed is, is when you guys have to ask the uh, electric generators to turn off the power in different places. So uh, how have things changed now if there's another worst case scenario happening? I mean, obviously the weatherization uh, you know, of all the electric plants is fantastic. And, and we anticipate that will hopefully be happening on the natural gas side soon uh, once those places are identified. But, but what has changed on y'all's end as far as load shed? Uh, how have you changed the plan to turn off my lights if, if everything goes south? So, and to clear that up a little bit, uh, and you said generators, I don't like you meant generators. When we ask for load shed, we contact the distribution companies, the folks Encore, that are, have yeah. wires coming into your yards, right? It's not the generators, we're not turning anybody off. What we're saying is that uh, we need Encore to shed a thousand megawatts of power. And they've got a plan. So they know, they look down their list of their plan, they say, well, if we're gonna do a thousand, we're gonna turn off these five feeders. And that'll give us a thousand megawatts. And then in 30 minutes, we will rotate to these next five feeders. And that's how they do their system. That's their plan. And as I said, we consumed their plan up. So there was no one to roll to, right? They couldn't grow to that next set of customers. That's where we need to improve the load shed plans at the distribution companies. We need those to expand. Now, here's the problem. All of the gas, remember our gas system is, is pretty amazing in Texas, it's all over. And so all of our gas system applied for critical designation. So at the same time, we're trying to expand this capability, these load shed plans, well, they're contracting because of all these other facilities now asking for critical level service. Mm. So that's the fight that we're having. We're, we're, they're both having to, to take on new critical customers, which means some lines can't be shed and at the same time, they are trying to expand the plant. And so that's the push and pull that they're in today. Did, did Wheeler's house make that list at all? <laughs> Wheeler's I don't know that I don't know that it did. But, Brad, could you put it uh, on there since we just have you on the line here? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm interested in this. So, you know, we had what happened in that winter storm. This past winter, things went well, as we talked about. You know, some things have changed. Some things haven't. Maybe we got a little lucky in there as well. Then we got to this summer, uh, these warmer months, spring and summer. And there were a couple of times when it got a, a little bit, you know, worrisome, you know, where we started to get these alerts that people needed needed to conserve across the state. People stepped up and did that. And thankfully, we didn't have those rolling blackouts. I know you probably hate that term too. Uh, so, so we averted that. But is there a problem going forward with having enough generation capacity here? Uh, we've had Ed Hers on the program before, who's the energy fellow there at the University of Houston. He says that Texas just hasn't been aggressive enough for the past decade or more in bringing new plants online. And our population and our GDP here has just exploded, but we're not increasing the capacity for what we produce enough. Uh, great question. Yeah, I had two pieces to it, though. I want to start with the first piece, and then we'll end with your the answer to your question. But the first piece is on conservation. We want to communicate more than we ever have before. And you see that most notably on our website. I'm sure you've seen all of the data that we've provided on the website, what we call our dashboard. And we keep improving and making sure that's updated, making sure that 
that we're getting the best information out. And that has been so great because it's given you the opportunity not only to hear me talk, but then you can go look at that slide set and say, yeah, I see what he's saying now. It looks like wind is low today, or it looks like, hey, the solar has been impacted. You can see all of those facts on those charts. So that's part of our communication. But another thing we're doing is we're acting to ensure reliably reliability earlier. Used to be we waited till almost the last moment, sometimes beyond the last moment, till we were in emergency conditions. We've moved many of our tools outside of emergency conditions, one of those tools being a conservation alert. So what I believed was most important is if we can talk to uh, residents and tell them before they go to work that next morning that we'd like them to conserve during that day. Everyone has the opportunity then to turn your thermostat up a couple of degrees to, uh, to make sure that you're planning for your major appliances to be off of peak. And they did. Millions of Texans did those small things and saved us 500 megawatts on that first day, July 11th, when we called it. 500 megawatts. That's two good-sized power plants that we saved. And that was enough to keep us out of emergency that day. So I want to thank all Texans for what they've done. And I've said this before. If you think Texas is what you read on Twitter, you're sorely mistaken. Texans are the people that called me that day. Remember, I did a, this speaking tour around the, the state. And I gave out my phone number to a lot of people, which I probably shouldn't have done. But I got calls that day from several folks. I got a call from Estelle out in West Texas in Midland, Odessa. And she says, Brad, I just want to let you know I turned my thermostat up two degrees. And I said, right on, Estelle, keep on it, keep rocking, right? And then I got a call from Joy in, uh, in College Station. She said her manager walked up and down the floor right at two o'clock when it started and turned off all the unused lights. Simple things like that. And I just want to, again, ex express my appreciations for Texans for stepping in. When we ask for that, it is not because we're in trouble. When we ask for that is because we want to stay out of trouble. And that's what they helped us do. So that's conservation. To your question, specifically about generation, we have to solve this problem. Why? We've got, we are the number one state in the country for attracting renewables, both wind, but primarily today it's solar. Something like 80,000 megawatts of solar had si has signed up to be interconnected to our grid. Now, we don't think all of that will come, but 80,000 megawatts, when you put that in context of what we currently have, everything we currently have is 135,000 megawatts mm -hmm. in the summer. So 80,000 megawatts are planning to interconnect to our grid. It's, it's, it's just phenomenal. But Brad, wind and solar are, you know, you get on Twitter when we have one of these calls for, hey, we need everybody to conserve. And you've got this group of people who just lambaste wind and solar. Wind and solar got blamed uh, right after uh, Winter Storm Uri, even by some elected officials. Uh, yeah. And then later we figured out that it was, you know, really a natural gas problem more than anything. Can you clear that up for people out there who still I think sure wind can. and solar are the enemy? I sure can. Solar is fantastic. When it gets hot in Texas, we have no clouds, right? We don't have clouds when it gets hot. It's just hot and dry out there. So when we get hot, we have no clouds. We have no clouds. You've got great solar insulation. And that solar has been fantastic this summer. So it has, you know, it was producing 10,000 megawatts on roughly uh, 12 to 13,000 of installed solar. We were getting 10,000 of that. So that's a very high degree of that solar coming into our system. Uh, and so I can't say enough about it. 
wind does fantastic, but wind every once in a while has a bad day. We just have to recognize that. And so most of the time, people on Twitter will only hear about it when it has the bad day, not the other 29 good days, but when it has a bad day. That's what you're hearing a lot about. Mm. Now, as we bring more wind and solar into the state, which I think is a phenomenal thing for us, we're attracting them. It's coming in at a low price. The feds are helping pay for half of it, right? So that's good for Texas. We like the feds paying for half of it. Uh, And so we get those resources in our market that's going to bring down our price quite a bit because of those, those economic resources. But the key is we have to also plan for that day when there's no sun and no wind, right? And I just told you how good solar was, but you know how much solar we depend on in the winter? Zero. Mm. Why? Because our peak hits at 8 a.m. in the morning and at 8 p.m. in the evening. Mm. Solar's not there at either time. There's very little, I mean, the sun's not up in most cases at either time. So very little impact or positive impact from solar during the winter, still some positive impact from wind, but we have to make sure that we have enough dispatchable generation on that day when there's no sun and no wind. That's what the Public Utility Commission is working on today. They have phase two of their market design, which they intend to wrap up sometime probably in late December or January. Uh, but that will help decide what our future is. And they're going in a great direction so far. I think that that they will decide in a way that will ensure reliability. Now, you mentioned Ed Hurst. First of all, I think Ed Hurst is great. He has, uh, and I've quoted his, uh, when he talks about our energy-only market, our market is called energy-only. Has he probably told you this, this uh, analogy, but he said, energy-only market is like the, you're nodding because you've, you've heard it. It's like the uh, Astros going out into the field you only pay the people that get on the field. You don't pay anybody in the dugout, which means pretty soon your dugout's going to be down to one utility guy that hopes somebody gets injured, right, so that he can go play. You need to pay the dugout. You need to pay them something to keep those generating units both here, meaning retain the ones we have, and attract new ones that we need to come. Our load growth in the state is 2% per year. There's not another state that's even close. Most states are negative to flat. We are 2% a year growth. And we have to keep attracting those new generation while retaining what we have if we're going to meet that growth. We intend to do so. Brett, for our listeners who might hear phase two market redesigned, just so they know what this headline is when it comes out later this year, um, that's adding a a number of things to to the kind of rebuilding the system for the first time in, in, uh, what, a decade or so? Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it's what phase two, two design is. Two decades. But here, I yeah. want to ask you about this. You talked about how, you know, bad days on Twitter get, get spread everywhere. And naturally they do. That's what everyone talks about. It's fascinating that, that under your direction, conservation days are no longer in the emergency toolbox. There's something you guys can roll out uh, ahead of time to, to kind of stop the situation before it actually begins. I didn't know about this until I heard it a few weeks ago from a friend of mine in politics you guys have set, since Winter Storm Uri, the state of Texas has set 37 records on peak demand, peak, peak records, which is unbelievable, to, unbelievable because we've only had, I believe, one, two, maybe three conservation calls. But we've been setting records the whole time, which means that 2% growth we're getting every year, 
which mm-hmm. is unmatched across the country, is, is uh, you, you know, really showing itself here. This is what I want to know. I'm asking a long question like Wheeler does. I need to land the plane. Here's my question. <laughs> my, my question, Brad, each of these times that you guys get these peak loads, May 8th, 9th, 17th, 19th, June 6th, 7th, 10th, 12th, 16th, 20th, how much political pressure are you under? Do you have the governor calling you saying, Brad, are the lights going to stay on? You better tell me if these things go off. Is there a hotline there now in your office, straight to the governor's office? You know, I, I had talked with the governor quite a bit as we get into these very tight days, but I don't see this political pressure. The governor calls and he says, do you have everything you need? Is there any way I can help? That's not political pressure. That's him getting engaged, I think, in the way that he should be engaged. Calling me up, he's called, uh, you know, I told this story that he's called me up at uh, 11 p.m. at night. Uh, you know, I had already been in bed for an hour and he said, uh, how's the grid look? And I said, well, an hour ago, it looked fine when I went to bed. So, you know, he's he's that engaged. He's following it. He's tracking it. And he's offering at every step how he can help us. I think that's the right thing to do with the Public Utility Commission. We go to them and we talk to them in advance about what our week looks like, what last week looked like, what we see coming over the next seven days, when those days are going to be tight. And every morning I'll, I'll get an email when things are looking tight from the chairman of the PUC and he'll say, tell me how you feel. I mean, as simple as that. Tell me how you feel about tomorrow. And I'll send him a note back saying, here are the four things that we're talking about. If we need to pull one of these triggers, you'll be the first to know. I'll contact you. We'll talk about the issue. We'll make sure that, that we can get the right communications out as we do the right thing for liability. So actually, the coordination with the governor all the way through the Public Utility Commission has been really fantastic in the last year. Brad, since we're switching roles here, I'm going to ask one of those real quick Jason Whiteley questions now. Should Texas stop being independent with its grid and join the national grid? I say no. All right, let me tell you why. In that listening tour that I went through, the first, and there's multiple reasons, so hang with me. I'm going to give you a Jason Whiteley answer, too. Uh, so... so uh, the first thing is, when I sit in those, those meetings with the, each of the city councils and each of the, the mayors would be sitting in the room with the, in the town hall meetings, and this question would come up from time to time, I would turn to the mayor of, say, Plano, that, uh, since y'all are in Dallas. I'd turn to the mayor of, of Plano and say, Mayor, who do you think would be better at setting municipal laws for the citizens of Plano? Would it be Plano or should we just let Dallas do it because they're bigger and they do this all the time? And obviously the answer is no. Plano needs to set their own municipal laws because that what's that is what fits the citizens the best, not some other larger organization some, some way off. Let me give you a couple examples of how that has worked out. When we did the Competitive Renewable Energy Zones, which is commonly referred to as CRES in Texas, mm-hmm. we built out transmission to to wind zone rich areas, okay, areas that we believe would be great to develop wind turbines. We built transmission before the wind turbines were ever built. We could not have done that in any other state. Every other state is looking at CRES saying, trying to figure out how did you do that and how can we make that work? But they failed to figure out how to do it in each of their states. We were able to do that. That's a great example of how Building something for what works for Texans, we were able to get it done earlier, faster, I should say, able to get it done faster and in a way that served our best interest. And because of that, we've added 35,000 megawatts of wind in Texas. 
right? Let me give you another example. Our retail market is more competitive than anything in the world. We are the standard for the entire world on a retail competitive market because we set up the rules for what we thought would drive competition. A lot of states got worried and said, we want, don't want to jump in with both feet. We're going to step one toe in. And then what happened was because customers had this other, other mechanism, they never got into the competitive process. Texas eased everybody into a competitive process. Now we have the most competitive retail market. Two examples of why having our own control over our rules allowed us to do something extraordinary here. But I haven't answered your question still. So now we get from the white, yeah, I'm going to take off from the white of the question. I'm getting on Go to ahead. your answer. <clears throat> Can we get to the same place in other ways? Can we retain the value of making our own rules, not become further jurisdictional, and get to the same place? And I say yes. Two ways that can be done. Right now, we have 820 megawatts of DC ties. It's, I won't bore you with the details, but we actually, in order to meet federal rules, we have to change our AC power, alternating current, into DC, then run it across the Red River or the Sabine and turn it back into DC. It's just silly, right? But that's, that's what it takes to stay outside of the federal rules today, that we convert that power over. So using that same model, there's a, uh, a company called Southern Cross that plans to build 2,000 megawatts to the east. And another company, um, I forget their name, that plans to build to the west another 2,000 megawatt tide. So there's ways that we can solve this problem of importability without having to give away our jurisdictional control. Mm -hmm. And those are just a couple examples. When are those 2,000 megawatt ties in the east and west going to be up and running because we have needed power in the past five years that we haven't had? Yeah, so that the one to the east is probably three to five years away. The one to the west would be further. It's, it's fairly new. I, I know you're, you're really short on time here. This is my last question for you. Um, if, for, for our listeners who might not know, uh, Brad, you were on the transition team from, you know, turning this into a competitive market in the 1990s. So you have a, a long history here. You were retired when you were called out of retirement, obviously, to take this job when nobody wanted it. Um, you, you took it at a, at a, at a uh, cheaper salary than your predecessor had. And here's my question for you, though. Did, did you want... The permanent job, you're only the interim CEO, and that, that expires at the end of the month. And uh, Pablo Vegas has been appointed to the, uh, the new permanent CEO. Did you apply for that? No, no. And, and to be very clear, when I came in, the first thing I said to the governor is that I will be here as long as you need me to be here, but I will never be permanent. Because hmm. I wanted to keep the pressure on him to find that new permanent person. And he has. I, I have a great deal of confidence in Pablo. He's, uh, he's met everything that I would hope for in a new CEO. And I think Urquhart's going to enjoy him, and I think he's going to do great things for Texas. I said the same thing about this podcast, though, to Wheeler, that I, I will be here as long as you need, but I won't be permanent. And here we are three years in, and he hasn't found a, a permanent person yet. Yeah, you're still going to be doing this long after I'm gone, I think. Uh, Brad, uh, we're almost ready to let you go. I have a couple of quick ones. We'll do a lightning round here, okay? All right. uh, do you think that what we're learning now, since we are going in and weatherizing and doing all of these things and making all of these changes, did Texas start off too deregulated? Did we deregulate too much when we set up this whole thing and now we're making those adjustments? So there are elements of it, and it's not about deregulation. It's about setting up the market with the right mm -hmm. incentives. Right? So you can deregulate and still have market incentives 
for reliability. For example, back in 2005, uh, the market struggled with the issue whether or not we wanted to keep on-site fuels mm-hmm. in many of our generators, which would allow them, in case of a gas disruption, to continue to operate. It was decided then, because of a cost savings, to not go that route. Mm. Not set up a market design, and I mean market here, not set up a market design that would pay for that additional reliability. We're changing that today. So the the answer to your question is, did we not, it's not that we deregulated uh, improperly. The answer to your question is, did we set up the markets in a way that drove the right type of reliability? And in some places, obviously, we did not. And that's mm. what we're fixing. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, when we were in the height of that winter storm and even a little bit after that, when the wholesale price of electricity just went through the roof, those people who were still able to produce electricity made billions of dollars in the span of several days. Then we had companies in this state that lost billions of dollars in a span of several days. And now a lot of ratepayers are on the hook paying for those companies that lost all that money as they pay their electric bills, perhaps over the next couple of decades. Did that end up fair? So what you're talking about is that for most companies, their shareholders took the bond. Mm-hmm. For most gas, uh, gas, well, gas companies made a lot of money. Most electric companies lost money and they took the bond. Why? Because they had signed contracts, which is really how it should work in a competitive market. They had signed contracts at a steady rate for a year or more. And so those customers never saw those high prices, never saw those blowouts, and they rode right through it. And the same thing happened you know, throughout most of the retail competitive market. For customers that were in uh, cooperatives or municipals mm-hmm. that ran into these problems, those cooperatives or municipals are able to pass those costs along to their citizens, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, not with cooperatives, along to their members there, but with municipals, they pass it along to their citizens. That's how they work. That's the structure they're under. I mean, for most of the time, they get lower rates. But in this case, they got they got to pay these higher rates and higher costs. So is it equitable? Yeah, I think it's equitable for how each of the different types of customers, what system they're in. But I do think that 75% of customers were on essentially some sort of fixed rate and did not feel the impact of the storm. Brad, Economic. last thing, because uh, I know yeah. you got to go. Um, a lot of people go to Power to Choose. They select that plan. They go back. They keep on shopping for it every time their plan comes up. I've heard from a lot of people lately who they don't like the choices that they're seeing right now, obviously, because natural gas is so expensive. That's making electricity more expensive. I will say I signed up for uh, a plan uh, a little more than a year ago. Five point something cents per kilowatt hour, folks. Are you, you still can't on find that? anything near that now, Brad. Do you oh. have any kind of thought as to how long it's going to be before we will see prices start to come back down? Every time we have somebody really smart about energy around, I like to ask them that because a lot of people are so, worried about shopping for those plans. A lot of it depends on gas, as you know. So uh, I've known no one that's good at predicting gas prices. Never <laughs> run across anybody. So you don't know. You know, the Russians just, uh, you know, had a full call on more military. So that probably tells us it's going to be around for a while. But the other side of the equation is all of the solar we have coming into the state that, you know, solar runs right across that highest, hottest, highest price period of the day. And as that solar comes in, it's going to bring that price down quite a bit. 
So I, I can't give you, you know, I, I have no crystal ball on this, but I know that even though we've got at least a couple of years probably on high gas prices, we've got in a couple of years, real downward pressure coming from solar. And let's say that we remove the gas prices at the same time that solar is coming in, we should see us return to much more reasonable prices than what we, you know, more like what we've had in the past. But to give you still, not to overplay that, to give you a, another sense of this. The prices are up, you know, 18, 19 cents, somewhere in that range uh, for power today. Uh, in the last year is about 11 to 12 cents. You're five and a half, that's pretty incredible price. Uh, but about 11 to 12 is where it's been. So the significant increase in those prices. Our major competitors in the, in the country would be California and New York, right? Major competing states for both right. large economies. New York's at 25 cents. Mm. California's at 45 cents. Mm. So even at 18, we look pretty good. And actually, I'm mixing up data. I'm telling you what's on power to choose. The average price in ERCOT all of last year is 11 cents. Mm. So 11 is what we compare to their 24 in New York or 20, 23. And 11 is what we compare to 45 in California. Now, the southeastern U.S. has about eight to nine on that same last year's chart. So they're lower price than we are. Uh, but once that nuclear plant comes on, comes online over there, it's going to change that a bit. Um, the Northwest is really low because they've got a lot of hydro up there. So we are situated well relative to Louisiana, to Oklahoma, to New Mexico, and places in the Midwest. We're situated well in that pricing. So we're, we're not disadvantaged economically to the others. And uh, I, you know, I would just say this, no, no offense to the folks in Southeast, I love them. Uh, but, uh, but if a company has a decision to locate in Austin, Texas, or in Jackson, Mississippi, that's a pretty easy decision. There's Even no if water there's a in Mississippi. Mm. Yeah. What's that? There's no water in Mississippi. There's no water in Jackson. You don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, but it's a pretty easy decision, even if there's a couple of cents difference in electric prices. Hey, uh, Brad, where, where are you going on vacation when you finally get done with this job that nobody in the state really wanted? You know, the, the first place is I've got a boy who, uh, when I came back from New York, of all things, he got a job as an operator at the grid at the New York ISO. What? And I, I told him, hey, I just got home. And he went back up there. My first trip is to go see him. and hmm. seen him in about a year. Man, uh, safe travels to you up there. I know you're looking forward to seeing them. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate your insight. And uh, thanks for keeping the lights on for us, man. Mm. Uh, my pleasure, guys. Thank y'all. Brad, Take thank care. you. So I, I, I'm confident after hearing from Brad, I'm confident that he's confident that things mm -hmm. will stay on. He didn't seem 100% though on the gas side of it. He's not no. responsible for natural gas. And we've had on Todd Staples, the... Right. Um, the, the head of the lobby group there uh, for the natural gas side. I, I, we haven't been, we've been tested a lot during the summer. I'm not yeah. sure if we've been tested in the winter again. Right. Well, and, and you know, when you're the, the head of ERCOT, even if it's in an interim role, you learn diplomacy real fast. He was about right. as diplomatic as he could be in the section where we were asking about um, 
the Texas Railroad Commission because they're the ones who, you know, oversee the, the gas folks, you know, making sure that they're winterized. And they took their time here and said, well, let's develop those rules. Let's take some time. Let's get around to that. He was about as diplomatic as he could be in saying that, I, I don't know that you want to take all of that time to do that after what we went through in February of 2021. So there is that out there. But uh, this guy has got to be enormously relieved that come October 1st, there's somebody else in that corner office. Uh, And surprisingly, I mean, we invited him to have a beer with us today, but he he didn't. uh, But he's probably going to make up for that come, what, October 2nd. He's got a few days left of the job here, and and the governor probably calls him daily, making sure the lights stay on. So you probably don't want to have a buzz going when you're in (laughs) in that job there. You know, what he said was interesting, too, that when you see these conservation alerts, if they ever come back out, these aren't necessarily emergencies like we've thought of them in the past. It's right. like, hey, things might be getting tight over the next few days. If you can help us out, help out. And people answered that call yeah. earlier this summer when when things got uh, when, when it got hot outside. Not happily, many of them no. though. I mean, when we had Ed Herzon from the University of Houston, he was saying, you know, what is this? The seventies? You know, right. I'm being told I've got to turn my thermostat up to X degrees here just because you can't, you know, get this right. Uh, he has been unsparing. It's it's funny though that uh, we're, we're hearing the same analogies uh, yeah. from Brad. Uh, you know, Ed Herz does have good analogies. They do tend to stick with you. Uh, you know, speaking of the governor just a moment ago, who you got? Who you got come this November? Because we are heading down to the border uh, for our next uh, podcast. Who's calling me there, man? I don't know. Who is who, who calling is me? Oh, is that it's the a friend of mine. Him? No, it's not the governor. Trust a- answer me. the phone. Let's put him on the podcast. I'm not answering that. Who is it? No. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and so, you know, so we're going to be down at the border. This is, you know, as we understand it, maybe, who knows, the one and only gubernatorial debate. That's the way it's sounding. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, the Republican playbook, as, as we've all seen over the past few cycles, has always been the Republican governor will do, you know, one and done, one debate to say that, hey, we had a debate with the with the Democrat and they always happen on a Friday night during the fall. When everybody's watching uh, high school football or doing something else and not paying any attention and I'll the ratings you. are not great. Yeah. Uh, out to eat and who knows what, what everyone else might be doing. So I, I can't imagine in the remaining six weeks that we'll have another debate. Um, but there are a number of organizations who have uh, invited both candidates to have a debate. And they're both always welcome here on Yolitics. We, we, we shall make time. We'll, that. we'll buy the beer. Yeah. We'll buy them the beer. Yeah. Make it mandatory. Here, have two and then start talking. What do you think Beto drinks? Beto hasn't had a beer with us, has he? I don't think he has. And the governor hasn't. The governor hasn't been on with us. It's been We've a, asked. He hasn't been on the podcast. We've asked. We'll have to find out what he drinks too. Maybe we send them both a case that's with an invitation. What's that? Maybe that's how we lure them. <laughs> Free beer. Yeah, <laughs> that so got me here. Yeah, even if it's warm. You're right. So a, a quick shout out once more to the Texas Tribune Festival. It just wrapped up in Austin. Huge names in politics were there over the past few days um, talking about a bunch of different ideas. One of the names they had was Brad Jones, the interim CEO of ERCOT. And they graciously uh, you know, shared his information with us. And Brad made time for us here on the podcast. Thanks again to the Texas Tribune Festival. And thanks for listening to us today. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, tell your friends about it, too. We'll uh, talk next week.